And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Preston Bell, who writes, Hey, John and Aaron, and Aaron is not here today. She should be here next week. I hope y'all are doing fantastic and staying safe. Have you heard about the new Fletch remake that Miramax is coming out with? According to Variety, John Hamm will play the part of Erwin Fletcher and will also produce the movie. Alongside Connie Travell, Greg Matola will direct and Zev Barrow will write the script. What do you think? Is John Hamm a good choice to play the quick-witted investigator? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, listen, they have been trying to get a Fletch movie done for a long time. They've been trying to get a new Fletch done forever. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to 2006, all the way back to 2006, for a number of years, they were trying to develop it with Scrub star Zach Braff. And actually, I remember when they cast him initially and everybody thought, oh my God, that's perfect. Zach Braff playing Fletch? That would be fantastic. Now, I don't know about you guys. Maybe some of you haven't watched it because these are old. These are in the 80s. These are older films, these Chevy Chase Fletch movies. But I really like them. I know Fletch Lives, the sequel, wasn't as good as the first Fletch, but I still liked Fletch Lives very much. I Especially when he did the whole Lakers fantasy and all that kind of stuff. I love that stuff. But for the longest time, it was supposed to be Zach Braff was going to be playing that title role. And that was always a great idea. Well, now that fell away a few years ago, but now it looks like it's back. Only this time, it looks like John Hamm is going to be playing the role. John Hamm is great. I mean, there's not much John Hamm can't do. He can do serious drama. He can do comedy. He can do action. I mean, he can just do it all. He is seriously one of the most charming guys on screen I, I would put him alongside a guy like Tom Hanks. Clearly, he's he's significantly younger, but I would put him alongside of guys like Tom Hanks as far as one of these overall incredible charm and charisma and literally can do anything on screen that you need him to do. Like, everybody forgets that Tom Hanks started his whole career doing comedy. Everybody just saw him as the funny guy, as the comedy guy. And then, of course, he came in, did Philadelphia, won an Academy Award, came back the next year with uh, Forrest Gump, won the Academy Award again, back-to-back years, he won Academy Awards. I I would suggest that while we may not see John Hamm get two or three Academy Awards on his mantle, he's just kind of like in that sort of category. He is a guy who can do it all on, on screen. Will he be a good Fletch? I have no doubt. I think it's I think it's pretty much a certainty that he's going to be a really good Fletch. But one of the more interesting things about this particular story is the fact of not just who's going to star in it, but actually who's going to be directing it. Because they announced that it's going to be directed by Greg Matola. Now, you may not recognize the name. It's not a name that gets talked about a lot until, until you start looking at his resume. He directed Superbad, which everybody loved. He directed Adventureland, which full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of Adventureland. I'm not. But almost everybody I know really liked Adventureland. So it's worth mentioning here. I'm not a big fan of it personally, but a lot of people love Adventureland. He also directed a number of episodes of Newsroom, which I thought was fantastic. Arrested Development, which a lot of people love. And a number of other projects. He's got a number of high profile things that a lot of people like very, very much. So you take something like this particular property and you combine it with a John Hamm starring in it, this could actually be pretty damn good. 
This could be really, really good. Now, it could be a dumpster fire, and who knows what will happen. We'll have to wait and see. But as of right now, I, I think this is good news. Question here is, guys, what do you think? about the announcement that they are moving ahead with a new Fletch movie and the fact that it's going to be John Hamm starring in it. Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Gordy, who writes, Hey, John, I heard online that Tenet, talking about Tenet here, needs to make at least $800 million to make profit. You read that right. They're saying it's going to take at least $800 million for tenant to make profit. This could be bad. Number one, lots of theaters are closed or temporarily shut down due to the virus. Number two, this movie isn't a sequel or based on a pre-existing property. Is tenant doomed to fail. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, of course, we've been talking about Tenet a lot because it's supposed to be like the first big film to open up in theaters. It's been bumped twice already. Currently, it's scheduled to open on August 12th, but a lot of us have doubts that it's actually going to be able to make its August release date. The only question now is, will it get bumped to September or will it get bumped to October? We'll have to wait and see. And by the way, it's still possible. It is still possible that Tenet makes that August 12th release date. I'm just saying it's looking less and less likely. That being said, you may have been hearing running around the internet the last 24 hours or so that did you hear that Tenet needs to make $800 million to break even? Tenet needs to make $800 million to break even. Now, where this is all coming from, it's kind of a line in one paragraph buried in an article on IndieWire, which is a, a great publication, by the way. If you don't read IndieWire, you should. It's If you're a film fan, it's, it's really good. But their writer kind of buried somewhere down in it that the movie's going to need $800 million to break even. To which a lot of people ask, wait a minute, time out. How the hell or why the hell would Tenet need to make $800 million to break even? The answer to that question is, I highly doubt it needs to make $800 million to break even. Actually, there's some other outlets that are questioning that number. And it very well could be $800. We're going to go into that in just a second. Personally, I don't think it's going to take $800 million for this movie to break even, and we'll get around to why. But the question still remains, why would Tenet, even if it's not $800 million, Tenet's going to take a hell of a lot of money to break even. And a lot of people have been asking online in the last 24 hours, understandably so, why? Why, why would a movie possibly need to make so much significant money in order just to break even? Because I'll tell you what, it is kind of funny how, despite how many times we've sort of talked about on the show, I still to this day get tons of messages from people who don't really understand basically how you need to figure out how much money a movie needs to make to break even. Because just yesterday, just yesterday, I got a message from somebody we were talking about a movie and it wasn't about something we were talking about yesterday, but it was about a movie we were talking about a while ago. And somebody wrote me this message yesterday in the comments that basically said, uh, John, uh, you said this movie lost money. But I looked it up, and the budget for that movie was $105 million, and it made $130 million at the box office. And they said this, I don't know what kind of math you guys do in Canada or what kind of math they teach in Canada, but 130 in America is more than 105 
And I, I know I'm saying it kind of mockingly, but but it's true. There are a lot of people who still think along those terms. And it's understandable, right? You hear that a movie costs X amount of money, like we're hearing Tenet costs $200 million. Why on earth would it cost more than $201 million to break even, let alone some kind of number like $800 million? So why would Tenet cost so much or at least require so much just to break even? Well, you got to look at it the way you look at all kind of movies and how they break even. How much does Tenet need? <clears throat> well, here's the basic formula. You need to take the production cost of Tenet, add the marketing cost of Tenet, and once you combine those two things, you now have the cost of the movie. It's not just the production cost. Everybody just wants to look at the production cost. You also have to take in consideration marketing. Then, once you have that cost, you have to go the cost times 1.5. And generally speaking, that's how much money you need to break even. Take the total cost, multiply it by 1.5, and you're going to end up with your break even. Now, that's not an absolute science. That's just a general rule of thumb. There are exceptions, can be a little bit higher, can be a little bit lower, can be whatever. But generally speaking, if you want to look at how much tenants going to need to make to break even, you need to look at the production cost plus the marketing cost to get your total cost. And you got to take your total cost and multiply it by 1.5. And you know what? Let's go to Mr. Campius classroom, shall we? Let's all huddle in and go to Mr. Campius classroom. If I can get this thing open. There we go. I'm going to take my, uh, my iPad here. Uh, get this all set up. Hold on a second. It's uh, not recognizing my face. Okay, now it's recognizing my face. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's go over to Mr. Campius' classroom. And let's, let's, let's look at this for a second. Let's look at this whole thing. Production plus marketing equals cost. Cost times 1.5. All right, let's say you're making a movie, okay? And guys, I know internet memes are about to be made about how horrible my chicken scratch writing is, but screw y'all. Okay, so let's make up a movie. Let's say, um, let's say we've got a movie here called... The Fart of Eternity. Okay? So that's our movie. Fart of Eternity. It's, it's, it practically writes itself. It's going to win an Academy Award. Fart of Eternity. Okay. So that's the movie we're dealing with. Now, let's say we've got a production cost of $100 million. Okay? $100 million. And... The marketing costs, let's say they decide to go give it a good big marketing campaign, like a really good full marketing campaign, and our marketing costs end up also being $100 million. Okay, so according to that little formula we were talking about with Tenant, we said to get your total cost, you got to add the production cost plus the marketing cost. Okay, so our total cost, remember this is just a general rule of thumb is production plus marketing. So we're left with a total cost of $200 million. All right. So now you would think that our break even or BE, a lot of people would look at that and they think the break even then is $200 million. I mean, if the total cost is $200 million, the break even must be $200 million, right? Wrong. That's not the total cost. You still got one more step we got to go through here. And that last step to get to our break-even point is you got to take into consideration the theaters, okay? Because the theaters, they get to keep a little bit of it, and they basically keep one-third. Now, 
You may have read or heard some people say, oh, it's actually 20%. Or some people say it's actually 50%. Some people say it's more or less. All I can tell you is that when I was at AMC theaters and I was working for AMC theaters and I would travel to Kansas where their headquarters is, that the people, the way they described it to me is, you know, theaters keep a certain amount of money in the opening weekend. They keep a certain amount of money after the opening weekend and it changes and goes on a sliding scale. But basically they said, they told me, that basically you're looking at a figure of about one third. Okay. So you're talking about one third. The theaters keep one third. Okay. Then theaters keep one third. So what we now have is we need to get that one third accounted for. So what does it need at the box office? Well, it needs cost times 1.5. And in this case, since cost is 200 million times 1.5, we are left with a figure of three hundred million dollars that's how much fart of eternity which had a production budget of 100 million dollars it needs to make 300 million at the box office let's see if that's true okay so at the box office the movie made 300 million dollars you minus the one-third that the theaters keep which is 100 million and that equals 200 million which just so happens to be the actual cost of the film 200 million so fart of eternity, this movie needs to make 300 million at the box office to break even. Good on you, fart of eternity. Okay, well, let, let's, let's change the numbers up. Those are very, very simple numbers. Let's look at it a slightly different way now. And just in case you haven't been getting enough of, I admit it, guys, my handwriting's giving you all an erection. We all know it's true. Okay, let's make up another movie now. Uh, let's call, call it um, uh, Ass Slap. Um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, ass slap cops. I don't know. There we go. So we've got the movie called ass slap cops. All right. And now we're going to say that the production budget is, uh, 200 million instead of 100 million. Our marketing costs, we're going to say is a still a $100 million thing. So we know that the total cost is $300 million. Okay. Well, now we go through our basic thing again. We take cost, which is 300, times 1.5, and that equals $450 million, which we know is true because if the movie makes $450 million at the box office and theaters keep one-third, which is $150, you're left with, what are you left with? You're left with $300 million, which is the exact cost, and that's how much you need to break even. Production costs plus marketing cost equals total cost. Total cost multiplied by 1.5 basically equals your break-even point. That is what you're looking at. So yes, uh, that was a long way of getting to, to to saying this, to saying that yes, even though you know a movie like Tenet, they're saying it may cost around 200 million dollars. It's going to cost far more than 200 million for it to break even. I'm hearing that the marketing budget is somewhere around the neighborhood of $200 million. Now, if that's true, then we've got 200 million production plus 200 million marketing. That means we've got a total cost of 400 million. Multiply that by 1.5. And what do you get? $600 million. Well, okay. So we're looking at tenant now that minimum, minimum needs to make $600 million at the box office just to break even. So where's IndieWire getting this $800 million number? Well, well like I said, 
This formula of production plus marketing equals cost, cost multiplied by 1.5 is your break-even point. That's just a general rule of thumb. There's also a couple things to keep into consideration here. Maybe Tenet is actually costing more than 200 million. Maybe Tenet's costing like 250 and marketing maybe is more than 200. Maybe the marketing's like $250 million. For IndieWire, therefore, to say it needs about $800 million to break even, that is suggesting that the total cost is around $540 million. So you're looking at about 270 and 270. 270 production, 270. I don't think it's that high, but maybe it is. But that's just generally a rule of thumb. Regardless of the specific number, though, that's why when you hear about a movie like Tenet or others that need to make what it sounds like an astronomical number just to break even, that's why. It's never just as clear as, well, the production cost is $100 million, therefore it just needs to make $100 million and $1 to be profitable. No. Production plus marketing equals cost, cost multiplied by 1.5, which takes into account the one-third or 33% uh, of what the theaters generally take. Again, it's a sliding scale. We're just talking about general rule of thumb. That is not an absolute accurate formula. It just gives you a basic rule of thumb. So if you're ever trying to figure out how much money a certain movie needs to make to break even, you'll get a good general idea. Again, you won't be bang on the money, but just a general idea if you follow that basic formula. Again, I and other outlets are kind of questioning where that $800 million number came to, but then again, maybe IndieWire knows that it's actually more expensive to make Tenant than we thought. Maybe they're gonna spend actual more money because remember, Tenant started marketing this movie. They've already spent a lot of marketing money on this movie and then it got bumped release dates. Then they spent some more marketing money. They just advertised on the UFC uh, the other night. So they spent more marketing money. If it gets bumped again, then they got to spend more marketing money. So it could be that IndieWire is taking into account the rising costs of all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, there you go. Did I confuse it even more? I probably did. But hopefully some of you guys found that at least a little bit helpful. Okay. With that down, let's now move on to main topic number three, shall we? And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Greg the uh, Theron, like Charlize. Let, let's go with Theron. Greg Theron writes, greetings and salutations. There's been a bunch of renewed talk about Deadpool and how uh, uh, at how quiet it is right now. Wondering if you saw that Rob Liefeld, the creator of Deadpool, was just doing an interview and he said that he didn't think there was going to be a Deadpool 3. That seems impossible to me, but I admit that it is strange how there has been absolutely no word about it or news about anything developing. What do you think? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Greg. And yeah, this has been a constant ongoing kind of drama surrounding Deadpool, particularly the last six months or so, particularly when it comes to the creator, Rob Liefeld. Now, I don't, like, Rob Liefeld wouldn't recognize me in the street, but I've met Rob a couple of times uh, back at my old studio. Very fun guy to be around. Like, he is a great, he seems to have a really great personality, all that kind of stuff. But he's also been a little bit negative about Deadpool and Deadpool and Marvel and all that kind of stuff. Now, where this is all coming from right now is that, yes, Liefeld just did a interview where he kind of suggests that it's possible we're not going to get a Deadpool 3. This is what he says in particular. He says, you know what? There may not be another Deadpool, and I'm fine. 
because I have to live with the fact that I had two amazing experiences. Two movies I'm extremely proud of that he didn't actually make, but whatever. Uh, two movies I'm extremely proud of. I love knowing everybody on those movies. I love Ryan Reynolds, Josh Brolin, Zazie Beetz, David Leach, uh, Tim Miller, all of them. The work they did was fantabulous. Those movies are here to stand the test of time, you know, but in a world in the world we live in, nothing is guaranteed and it takes a lot to make movies and post quarantine, it's weird. So we'll just go back to that top part again. You know what? There may not be another Deadpool. There may not be another Deadpool. And I'm fine, he says, because of this, that, and the other thing. That sounds very odd on its surface because Deadpool is a franchise that has made for R-rated films some of the highest grossing R-rated films in cinematic history. They're also beloved by critics and they're beloved by audiences. The Deadpool movies are fantastic. And obviously when Disney bought and took over Fox, one of the big things that everybody was talking about was, of course, what's going to happen with Deadpool. The other thing we have to keep in mind, though, is that this isn't the first time that we've heard Rob Liefeld kind of complaining about Deadpool and the current state of Deadpool and the fact that we haven't got any movement on Deadpool. We've heard Rob Liefeld complain about this before. Not long ago, actually just earlier this year, uh, Rob Liefeld came out and, you know, he was talking about his frustration that we haven't gotten any movement on a Deadpool movie, a new Deadpool movie. And he basically said this, I blame Marvel, blame Marvel that that hasn't happened yet. No movement on Deadpool three. They are the reason it isn't happening. Whatever conundrum uh, or it didn't fit into your master plan. Just commission it. Just green light it, he's saying. Okay, commission it. You know, if Frank uh, Frazetta was still around, you would say, Frank, paint for me. All right. So here's the thing. Rob Liefeld has been openly and understandably, I mean, he's connected to the property. He's a big fan of the movies that they've made. He's understandably kind of frustrated that we haven't seen any real movement on the film. And he's like, blame Marvel. This is their fault. Don't wait for it to fit into your master plan. The thing that he's got to remember is this, is that the MCU is all about Kevin Feige's master plan. The reason the MCU has been so successful is because of the overall master plan Kevin Feige has made. And it's easy for somebody to come walking in and says, don't worry about your master plan. Just make it. Well, you know, Kevin Feige could say, that's what they tried doing over at DC when they started up their DCEU. Which one of us do you think did it better? I mean, that's probably his thoughts on that. But again, it is understandable that he would feel a little bit frustrated and maybe now to the point, maybe he's heard something, maybe he hasn't saying, you know what? I'm not even sure they're going to make a Deadpool 3 at this point. Here's what I think. Of course, they're going to make another Deadpool movie. Whether it'll be called Deadpool 3 or something else, who knows? Whether it'll be rated R or rated PG-13, who knows? Whether it's going to be in the MCU or made under the Fox banner and put in its own separate universe, who knows? Personally, I think it's going to be rated R and I think it's going to be outside of the MCU. But it could go the other way. Either way, I believe we will get another Deadpool movie. So why, some people like Rob Liefeld might understandably ask, what's the holdup? It was forever ago, forever ago that Fox got bought out by Disney. You've had tons of time to get, what's the holdup? Where is Deadpool? 
Well, here's the thing. What people constantly forget is that when Disney took over Fox and acquired a lot of those Marvel characters, it wasn't just Deadpool they got. They also got the X-Men characters. They also got Fantastic Four. They've already said they have plans to do stuff with Fantastic Four, and they plan to do stuff with X-Men. And, you know, we heard Alan Horn, the high lord and guru of all things Disney movies, Alan Horn said at CinemaCon last year, they've got plans for Deadpool. So they've got plans for X-Men. They've got plans for Fantastic Four. They've got plans for Deadpool. Why is nobody freaking out that we haven't got any news about X-Men? It's not a coincidence, nor should it surprise us that we haven't heard any real solid news on Deadpool when we also haven't gotten any solid news on Fantastic Four, nor have we gotten any solid news on X-Men. Yet for X-Men and Fantastic Four, we all seem to understand, oh yeah, Kevin Feige said he already has it, had his five-year plan in place and that he was going to have to take the Fox characters, put them on the back burner for now while he you know, fleshes out his five-year plan. We're about now three and a half years of that plan left. But he says, we, so we all understand that. When it comes to X-Men and Fantastic Four, we understand. Kevin Feige already said he has his plan. Why can't we understand that that would probably also include Deadpool? So we're not surprised that we haven't heard anything about X-Men, nor should we. We're not really surprised that we haven't heard anything about Fantastic Four yet, nor should we be surprised. So why are we all acting so shocked that, oh my God, they haven't done anything with Deadpool yet. Does that mean they're not going to make Deadpool? Oh my God, the world is falling. It's No, it's still the same thing. They just got to figure it out. And unfortunately for Rob Liefeld, who again, I think is a very cool dude, um, he's going to have to understand that, yeah, before they move ahead with anything, they got to figure out how it fits into their master plan. That's what being calculated and well-planned and well-prepared means. It sometimes means things, things move slowly. Okay. Their results have been pretty damn good. The results of them moving slowly have been pretty damn good. And so, yeah. I don't think there's much question. I think we are going to get a Deadpool 3. I think it'll be great. It just may take some time. And by the way, me personally, I don't even think they figured out yet those big questions we asked at the top about is it going to be PG-13 or R? Is it going to be in the MCU or not in the MCU? I'm going to be straight up. I don't even think they've come to a solid conclusion on that yet. Everybody will say they, they know what they're going to do. No, they don't. I honestly don't think Marvel has completely decided. And why should they have completely decided yet? And they may have. They may have. But there's no need for them to decide yet. They still got a lot of time. We know Ryan Reynolds has talked to the people at Marvel. He still seems confident they're going to make another Deadpool. So all that kind of stuff. But still, it's worth asking. I made the topic of today's question of the day. I put this up just before the show started. And I asked you guys, this is obviously on the community tab on our YouTube page. By the way, guys, if you want to keep up to date with all of our stuff, make sure you subscribe to this YouTube channel. Take a second, go down there and click subscribe and then check out the community tab. That's where today's poll is. Just before the show started, I put up this question. I asked, Deadpool creator Rob Liefeld is suggesting Deadpool could possibly not happen. Do you think another Deadpool movie will happen at Disney? Right now, about 2,400 of you guys have cast votes, and right now, the yeses have it. Yes, relax, it'll still happen, says 65% of you, but a full 35% of you right now are saying, you know what? No, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. And you know what? In your defense, maybe at some time, 
Bob Iger, who's still the chairman of Disney, maybe at some point, Bob Chapek, who's the new CEO, maybe they go, you know what? This whole question about whether to make it R or not, not worth our hassle. Let's just not do it at all. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but who knows? To your point, for those of you, 35% of you, maybe that is what they're going to do. What do you guys think is going on here? And has Rob Liefeld's comments swayed your opinion one way or the other? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's now move into our main topics today. And once again, if you want to get in a topic or question right now for our live question segment, just use the tip link in the top of the description of this video or simply at streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. All right, let's now, we're not going to take a break today, so let's flow right into the live questions, shall we? And we're going to start things off here with Alvin the Chipmunk, who writes, Tenant being delayed is concerning and all. But the real problem we should be concerned about is that New Mutants is probably going to be delayed again. Oh, yes. it's New Mutants is probably going to end up getting delayed again. I, I, I don't think there's much doubt about that right now. I think we are going to see New Mutants get delayed again. But, the, but at least this time, it's not New Mutants' fault. You know, I think we were just talking the other day that we just passed like the three-year anniversary of when the first New Mutants trailer came out. That's how long we've been waiting for this thing. Like these kids in New Mutants are going to show up at the premiere with their grandkids. If they're going to be celebrating the premiere, I don't know. But listen, I think if it does get delayed again, I don't think anybody will hold it against New Mutants this time. But it would just be yet another kind of piece of wood to add to the fire of the New Mutants is cursed. It, it might be, Alvin. All right. Uh, next up. Uh, what are we talking about here? Uh, Jay Bling writes, a theory on why Splash was censored by Disney Plus and Days of Future Past was not. Splash is rated PG, but it's no longer considered PG by today's standards. Days of Future Past is rated PG-13 and still has a rating, that rating by today's standards. Well, that kind of goes along with what I was saying about that, right? Like, remember when I listed those four reasons, why, what, four theories about why they added the hair over Daryl Hannah's ass and Splash, but they didn't do anything to censor out stuff in Days of Future Past. The number one reason I put on that list was, hey, maybe Disney just considers Splash truly a family film. Splash is in every way a family film that you can sit down with the kids and everything like that, whereas X-Men Days of Future Past is not. I mean, you can sit down with your family, but X-Men Days of Future Past is not a family film. And so maybe they looked at Splash and said, you know what, considering that we really want to market this and position Splash as a truly, totally family-friendly film, let's just extend the CGI over a bare ass. So I, I agree with you, Jay Bling, but that was the number one reason I gave as well. I think that has a lot to do with it. All right, next up, uh, Mahir Hawk writes, I should clarify my last name pronunciation is more Hawk than uh, Haku. You know what, I knew, I knew that because the last time you sent in a question and I and I pronounced it Haku, somebody wrote to me and said, I think it's pronounced Hawk. But anyway, uh, I should clarify that my last name pronunciation is more Hawk than Haku. Got that. I uh, just heard about Nick Cordero news. Yeah, this was uh, this was a little while ago. I uh, hope his family and Aaron are doing okay. Are you familiar with News Bulletin TV movies? I have no idea what that is. My favorite is Without Warning, 1995 from CBS. I'm, I'm not familiar with what that is. Yeah, the Nick Cordero stuff is really heartbreaking. And you know what's funny is that of course, you guys heard Nick Cordero, Broadway star and television actor. Uh, he he passed away recently from complications from COVID. And uh, he's, he's 
I believe he was in Aaron and Tom's Aaron, who's normally on my show on Thursdays. I believe he, I believe he was in Aaron and Tom's wedding party. Anyway, so Aaron and, and Tom are dealing with that and passing. What I didn't realize, and I might have told you guys this on my show the other day, what I didn't realize is, you know, I was on Facebook and I noticed a bunch of people I know back in Hamilton, my hometown of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, the Hammer, Steel City, yo, um, were talking about Nick Cordero and I didn't realize Nick was from Hamilton. I don't know how I didn't know that, but I saw some friends of mine like who knew Nick. And I, I didn't even realize. I didn't even realize. So, yeah, Nick passing away uh, affected my friend here, Aaron. And uh, little did I know, it also had a real big effect on people I knew back home. So it was a really, really sad story and a really sad end result. And, of course, he leaves behind a wife and a child and just a terrible stuff. Thanks for sharing your thoughts there, Mahir. All right. An anonymous viewer writes, I just want to show respect to Naya Rivera, who died saving her son from a boating accident. She was 33, so young. She played uh, Santana on Glee. Yeah, I saw that in the news. I Now, listen, full disclosure, I had no idea. I've never heard of this girl. I never watched Glee. Um, so basically, yeah, there's that. So I, I didn't have much personal connection to the story. But, you know, it was a really weird story because all we heard in the news was, they found her boat and her kid was in the boat, but she wasn't and really mysterious. And then the the final report came back that something went wrong and she used the last bit of energy she had to get her kid back into the boat and she didn't make it. And um, that's, I mean, you talk about a hero's death. You talk about a hero's death. The gates of Valhalla open for Naya Rivera. Um which is, uh, I mean, it adds, it doesn't take away the heartbreak of it, but uh, it, it just adds to the incredible sad story about that. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. All right, Alan writes, Hey, John, what are some of the best movie experiences slash reactions you've been a part of? For me, it's Avengers 1 assembling uh, in Circle, uh, Thor entrance to Wakanda uh, in Infinity War, Creed 2, Final Fight, First Knockdown of Drago, and Optimus Prime entrance in Transformers 1. I was actually just thinking about... The Optimus, I know for me, maybe not, I don't remember what the audience's reaction was in that first Transformers movie that Michael Bay did, which I'm a fan of the first one. All the rest of them are garbage, but I really did like the first one a lot. And I don't remember what everybody else's um, um, reaction was around me because I was just so zoned into what was going on. But you have to remember, I adored Transformers. I had every Transformers toy. I used to get the box of Transformers would come in, cut out the character's image, and then cut out the back of the box that had their power bar and character description, and I would put them up on my bedroom wall. My entire bedroom walls were filled with these Transformers box cutouts. Clearly, I was not bringing a lot of ladies into my room when I was a teenager. Anyway, so when I was sitting in that theater and watching that first Transformers movie, and that first moment that Optimus Prime comes driving down the alley with the mist and the smoke and that music, and it zooms in on him, closes in, and the camera starts to spin around him as he starts to transform, and then he's transferred, the camera continues to go around him, and then he stands and it's Optimus Prime. Sheer drips of giggles coming out of my pee-pee. I mean, I was ridiculously euphoric. I was ridiculously euphoric. I I was 
losing my mind so much so I couldn't I can't tell you what other people around me and how they were reacting I don't remember but like as far as big reactions go in the theaters that first Avengers movie a lot of people talk about when they all assemble and they're in the circle and the cameras going around that got a big pop but not as big as you might think um because remember that shot of them all standing in a circle and the camera going around them, that had been in the trailers, right? So it was a big pop, but everybody was expecting it. I actually found one of the bigger pops in the first Avengers movie is when Captain America is giving everybody their marching orders in the street. And then he goes, and Hulk, and Hulk looks at him and goes, smash. And then he grins and leaps into action and starts wrecking fools all over the place. The theater I was in went bananas. And the funny thing is, I was in a theater. My first screening was a press screening at the Disney-owned El Capitan Theater in Hollywood. And it was a press screening. So the whole audience was just all these, you know, these jagged, bitter, grumpy, seen-it-all film critics. And when Captain America goes smash and he smiles and he starts wrecking shop, it was like it was uh, it was like Hall H at Comic Con. All these jagged, bitter film critics like ah! were like losing their minds. It was incredible. Obviously, you got to go to Endgame as well when Mjolnir flies into Cap's hand. Thor showing up in Wakanda, in Infinity War, um, a, a lot of stuff like that. But yeah, those are those are some of the bigger ones. Those are some of the bigger ones. Anyway, thanks for asking, Alan. All right, next up, Kara Black writes, John, we know about your experience with the Batman franchise on the film and TV side, but what about your experiences on the video game side of the franchise, uh, specifically the four popular Batman Arkham games? I've watched the cutscenes of three of them. I've played one of them. I, I got to admit, I'm not the biggest fan of the games. Not that I think there's anything wrong with them. Don't get, don't get me wrong. It's just not really the style of game. Uh, that I generally play. Like, if you hear me talk about some of my favorite games, those are very, very different from the Arkham games. But, I mean, the story in them are, is great. I've talked about them on the show a number of times, but I haven't played all of them. I've only ever played the one that I talked about before. All right, Kara also writes, Can you recall the first time you ever watched the critically acclaimed and chilling Heart of Ice episode from Batman the Animated Series? Here's the problem, Kara. Uh, one of my favorite shows right now on television is uh, Lucifer. I couldn't tell you the name of any of the episodes. Uh, my three all-time favorite uh, television shows of all time, Battlestar Galactica, Sons of Anarchy, Spartacus. I cannot tell you the name of any of the episodes, except for the greatest episode, I think, in television history, which is the second exodus, or ex yeah, second exodus of Battlestar Galactica. But that's the only one that I know the name of the episode. I don't pay attention to the names of episodes. So unfortunately, when you say to me, Heart of Ice episode on Batman the Animated Series, which I have seen the entire Batman Animated Series, I, I couldn't tell you which episode that was. I can only assume it's one of the Mr. Freeze ones, but I, I don't know which one it is off the top of my head. Sorry about it. Like I said, you could name the name of an episode of Battlestar Galactica, and unless it's Second e Exodus, I wouldn't know which one you're talking about, even though I know that whole series inside out and backwards. Um, but I don't know the names of episodes. Sorry about that. All right, next up, Kara also writes, over under 70% chance that Hayden Christensen reprises his role as Anakin Skywalker in the Obi-Wan series via several flashbacks or dream sequences. I'm going to go way under, way under. I, I, I don't, right now, I still don't think he's going to be in, in the series. However, there is a fundamental difference 
between me saying I don't believe he's going to be in the series versus saying he won't be in the series. I'm not saying he won't be in the series. I think, you know, I've said for almost ever since they announced Obi-Wan, there's a possibility, especially when you go all the way back now before Star Wars Celebration Orlando, which was a couple of years ago. If you had told me an Obi-Wan series is coming, do you think Hayden Christensen will be in it? I would have said no chance. But at Star Wars Celebration Orlando a couple of years ago, Hayden Christensen showed up and they did a session with him coming on stage and they, they interviewed him on stage and the, all the love that he got. Good Canadian kid, by the way, which was really great to see. Ever since that happened, I've had to change my position. But it's like, you know what? If he came there to Celebration and all that, kind of, maybe, but I still wouldn't put money on it. Now, I know there's been some rumors going around the last like 24 hours or so about him showing up in it, but it should be noted that none of the major trades have reported it. Not Hollywood Reporter, not Deadline, not Variety, not Entertainment Weekly. None of them are saying that Hayden Christensen, it came from one particular website that said that they heard Hayden Christensen is going to be in it, and it might be true. It might be true. I, I'm not saying it's not true. It could be. I'm just saying if I had to set an over under, I would go under 50% because I still don't think it'll happen. But I but I totally am, am, am cognizant of the fact that it could. It's possible. Uh, certainly a lot more possible ever since Star Wars Celebration Orlando, but I would still guess, I guess not. So I'm going to go well lower than that, Kara, well lower than that. All right, Willow writes, I've been watching movies with my mom during the lockdown, and while I normally love the filthy, I start squirming whenever a nude or sex scene comes up. Uh, do you feel awkward when watching filthy stuff with your parents, and how do you overcome it? Oh, hell yes. It doesn't matter how old I get. When I'm at home, you know, I'm up at the Campia Ranch, and I'm at home with my parents, and the movie's on, if something filthy comes on screen, I totally inside I'm squirming. I'll act casual on the outside. Oh, yeah, that's no big deal. We're all adults here. No, you're not. You're still that little kid when you're sitting with your mom. You're still that little kid. So out on the outside, I'm like, oh, yeah, this, oh, yeah, just an adult scene. No big deal. But inside, I'm squirming, and I want nothing more than to run screaming out of the room. You know how on some TV shows, they, an uncomfortable situation happens, and then it cuts to, and, and then there's a scene where the, somebody's freaking out, but then the camera cuts back, and you realize that was just their imagination. Like, in my head, I'm getting up out of the room and screaming and yelling and running, running out of the room, because I can't be around my mom when that's happening. And yet, yeah, how do I overcome it? Oh, think of something else. Try to look casual, look calm, and totally think of something else. That's not the mature way to deal with it. But that's pretty much the way I deal with it. So I feel your pain, Willow. All right. Dan Ketchum writes, Every time I look at that picture of the new Batmobile, I hear the theme from Knight Rider. I swear it looks like an upgraded kit. All it needs is that red light bouncing across the front line. I disagree. Other than the fact that the car is black, I, I don't see much similarity there. I mean, it's, it's a black car and it's streamlined kind of, but I don't get it. I don't get uh, I don't get a Knight Rider feel from that. By the way, still one of the greatest TV themes of all time. It's a great TV theme. Only well, not only, but it's behind though what I still think is the greatest TV theme of all time. Now, not song. Songs are different. Songs have lyrics. The greatest TV theme of all time, to me. Uh, is still uh, Jan Michael Vincent's Airwolf. 
If you guys know the theme, you know the theme I'm talking about. That to me, when I hear that theme, I, I freaking love that theme. That's like the greatest theme song of all time to me. Anyway, Tyler Yeats writes, Hey, John. It's my 25th birthday today. Happy birthday, Tyler. I hope you have a fabulous day and a fabulous year ahead of you, my friend. Uh, Got to spend part of it watching the show. Thank you so much. I recently rewatched Dead Poet Society. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Um, for the first time in years, forgot how good it was. Made me really miss Robin Williams. Have a great day. Yeah, I mean, and that that's a movie. Dead Poet Society. I think it was nominated for Best Picture. I think. Let me give me a second here to check this out. Hold on a second. Uh, Dead Poets uh, Society. Um, IMDb. I I I I'm fair. It came out in 1989. I'm fairly certain it got nominated for Best Picture. Let me see here. It won for Best Screenplay, and yes, it was nominated for Best Picture. Um, it was also nominated. Peter Weir was nominated for best director and Robin Williams was nominated, although he did not win. Robin Williams was nominated for best actor in the leading role in that, but it was nominated for best picture. That movie has got everything. It's got laughs and it's got heart and it's got tragedy and it's just a powerful, powerful film. That's, that's a movie, Tyler, that more people should revisit more often, including me. So yeah, well done and good on you. And once again, my friend, Happy birthday to you, sir. All right, Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, just watched Knives Out. I love that movie for the first time, and I loved it. It's so fun and funny. Won't spoil it, but didn't see that coming. I just hope they do a sequel with a new case slash family. Well, they are. I mean, they've already announced it. They've greenlit it. They're going to do another Knives Out, which is, of course, but it's going to be an entirely different cast other than Daniel Craig. Okay. So Daniel Craig's character, the inspector, the the, uh, the the investigator, he's going to be the focal point of this franchise, and now he's moving on to the next case. Now, they haven't said that they won't bring anybody over. It's possible we could get a, um, a supporting role from one of the other characters, particularly the girl. She may come over. Again, I'm not going to give anything away for those of you who haven't seen Knives Out. Uh, it's possible they do that, but yeah, for the most part, they're going to do that, but they've already greenlit it. Ryan Johnson's already working on it, and we are going to get another Knives Out. That movie was so freaking good. I was so pleasantly surprised uh, by it. And uh, if you have not seen Knives Out, do yourself a favor. Go and check it out. All right. Thanos writes, what do you think is Al Pacino's best performance? Well, you know, it's funny you ask. I just brought this up on the show the other day. Al Pacino, a number of years ago, did a small Shakespeare project. Uh, a, a version of The Merchant of Venice that he also did with Joseph Fiennes, who is Ray Fiennes' brother. Also, Joseph Fiennes was the lead of the Best Picture winner, Shakespeare in Love. Anyway, so Joseph Fiennes is also in that with Al Pacino, and Al Pacino plays Shylock, you know, the one who demands his pound of flesh. So he, he plays Shylock in that. Certainly not the most popular movie that he's done, but I'm going to tell you what, I thought it was, I to this day think it's his best performance ever. I love him in that movie. If you haven't checked it out, go to uh, Al Pacino's IMDb page, look up his Merchant of Venice movie, see if you can find it somewhere and treat yourself. First of all, Merchant of Venice is awesome in and of itself. This was a great iteration of it, in my opinion, and I loved Al Pacino in it. I, I personally think it's his best performance. All right. Johnny5619 writes, 
In T2, the T-1000 came through naked, uh, then killed and took a cop's clothes. Same with the liquid chick in T3. She killed a chick and took her outfit. Uh, the problem is then those clothes became become able to liquidize with them. Great to have you back. Thanks for the show. Well, it's good to be back. And that was the whole conundrum we were talking about yesterday. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've seen the T's morph into something and their clothes morph. So... If their clothes are part of their physical structure, how come they need to come through the portal naked when really the clothes is just a part of their structure anyway? And then the clothes they steal just morphs into them, becomes a part of their... I mean, it is it is a conundrum, Johnny Five. Johnny Five, be alive and answer that conundrum for us. All right. Um, Il Postino, the postman, writes... Hey, John and Rob. Well, Rob's not here today. My two favorite books about filmmaking are Chris uh, Taylor's How Star Wars Conquered the Universe and Kirk Douglas's I Am Spartacus. What other titles about filmmaking could you recommend? Uh, Live long and prosper. May the force be with you. Well, I mean, neither of those books are really about filmmaking. I mean, they, they are about films. They're about the film world, but they're not really about filmmaking. Uh, like, for instance, Sidney Lumet's um, uh, f Making Movies. I think that's the name of his book, Making Movies. Sidney uh, Lumet's Making Movies. The Filmmaker's Handbook um, is another big, giant one. Uh, Rebel Without a Crew by Robert Rodriguez. Um, these are, like, really great books about filmmaking. You know what I mean? So, but if you're just talking about like books that kind of surround the world of a film and stuff like that, uh, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe is one of my favorites. But there's another one you guys have heard me talk about uh, the last couple of years. It's called, uh, oh, what's it called again? It's something, something, the 60 year battle between Marvel and DC. What's it called? I have the book. I can't remember. Now I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, Anyway, you guys have heard me talk about it. It's like the 50 or 70 year battle between Marvel and DC. Um, you've heard me talk about it on the show. It's fantastic because it goes into the history of the comics, but also how those how that transitioned into the movies a little bit later on. It's really Slugfest. Thank you, Colin Z. Slugfest. Slugfest is the name of the book, um, which I've talked about many times on the show. So it's called Slugfest. That's fantastic. Uh, so I would also, again, you already read my favorite one, but uh, go around. But if you want to get books about filmmaking, the, the Sidney Lumet book, the filmmakers, uh, the, the filmmakers handbook and rebel without a crew by Robert Rodriguez are all great books about filmmaking. So you should go check those out. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Next up, we've got, uh, where a goddamn mask writes Will Smith's been having a rough week with the entanglement. Yeah, that's, that's been kind of weird, uh, going public. So to cheer him up, what's the two best and two worst Will Smith performances? In my opinion, the best is Ali or bad boys, uh, three worst bright or after earth. See, here's the thing. I, I don't really do lists, even if it's just two, but I honestly can't ever think of a time that I saw a Will Smith performance and I thought the performance was bad. You know what I mean? Even in a movie like After Earth, which was a train wreck, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with his performance. I did not like Bright, the Netflix original movie. Neat idea for a movie, but I didn't really like the movie all that much. 
But still, I didn't think there was anything wrong with his performance. Now, Ali is obviously one a lot of people go to when thinking about his best because he got an Academy Award nomination for that. So no duh. But honestly, um, it's not the best movie in the world. But he did that little movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. His performance in that was pretty stellar. Like, really, really top-notch. And it's not a bad movie either. Some people actually love that movie. I, I'm not the biggest fan, but I like the movie. But his performance in it is crazy good. So Ali's a great pick, but I would also say always keep in mind Pursuit of Happiness. Also, I think it's, it's, it's seven and a half pounds. Is that a bad movie? Bad movie. But I think it's called Seven and a Half Pounds. Is that what the name of it was? Another really, really great performance of his. Anyway, thanks for sending that in, man. Uh, man of Steel Rules writes, The last nine years, I've been a physical therapist at a VA hospital for wounded veterans. That's awesome, man. Uh, the last several months, I've streamed your podcast during our sessions, and it's made a positive impact on their lives. Thanks for being the best at what you do. Oh, man, thank you. That's that's an incredible honor. Thank what do I say to that? Thank you so much for sharing that and, and letting me know. It's, um, that is, uh, that's humbling and an incredible honor. And thank you so much. And I'm glad you uh, allow me to be a part of your day that way, dude. So thank you so much for that. And, and good on you for what you do there, uh, dude. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Next up, Jared's Reviews writes, I'm a basketball fan, but while the NBA was shut down, I've been giving UFC a shot. I had some good fights yesterday, by the way, uh, just to watch some kind of sport. And I am really getting into it. The fight that made me a fan was uh, uh, Dustin Poirier versus uh, Hooker, which was just a couple weeks ago. Crazy fight. Uh, what's the fight you think made UFC bigger than boxing? Well, let's be clear here. UFC is still a baby sport. It's still just in its infancy. It is still a rapidly growing sport, and it's but it's still in its infancy compared to something like boxing. So I wouldn't say I, it's a far superior sport to boxing, far superior sport. But boxing's been around for centuries, and it's I mean I I would probably argue it's still kind of bigger. UFC mixed martial arts still growing, still in its infancy. Really. That said, the fight that made the UFC. There are a lot of great fights, a lot of turning points in the development of the UFC, but you ask any UFC fan, what was the fight? And the fight that pretty much made the UFC was the light heavyweight fight between Stefan, uh, the American psycho Bonner and Forrest Griffin. Forrest Griffin, who to this day is one of my absolute favorite celebrity personalities. I love Forrest Griffin. Anyway, the fight between Forrest Griffin and Stefan the American Psycho Bonner is legendary. These two guys wailed on each other. And, and they were fighting for a contract. Like, it was part of the Ultimate Fighter, and the winner of this fight got a UFC contract. And and when you hear Dana White talk about it, he said, "You, we watched the tracking numbers because after the first round, people across the world were getting on the phone and calling their friends saying, I don't know what you're doing, but you have to watch this fight. And they said, as the fight progressed, the view, the rating numbers just started to skyrocket. People were getting on the phones and tell, telling their friends, but you've got to watch this fight. It's great. It to this day is one of the craziest fights ever. 
There have been better fights since, but as far as like momentous turning points in UFC history, that fight, I don't know that I don't know where the UFC is today if it wasn't for that fight. Anyway, so the fight ends, neither of them got knocked out even though they each ate about 30 different shots would have which would have knocked out elephants. So the fight ends, they're battered and bruised and they stand and it was a super close fight. And the decision went to Forrest Griffin. He won the fight, got the UFC contract. But Dana White came in the ring and said, listen, for the show you guys just put on, you both get UFC contracts. And Stefan Bonner got a UFC contract as well. Of course, Forrest Griffin went on to become the uh, the uh, light heavyweight UFC champion. I, he took the belt from Ram. I believe, yeah, he beat Rampage Jackson to get to, to get the belt. Um, won a great fight against uh, Shogun Rua to earn a title shot. Got his title shot against Rampage. Won his title shot. Took a bad loss to Anderson Silva down at a, at a light heavyweight as Anderson. Silva. But whatever, that's the fight, man. That's the fight. If you can go and find that Forrest Griffin Stefan Bonner fight, go watch it. And it's the fight that I believe made the UFC. Anyway, uh, Calix Magister writes, "Your dream real movie prop collectible set from the list below. You can only choose one set. Okay, one Darth Vader's helmet and cyber. That's it. That's all I need to hear. That's it." Darth Vader's original helmet and saber, done. I don't care what comes next. Let's keep reading, though. Number two, Indiana Jones's fedora and bullwhip. That's a great one. Uh, three, Frodo's sting and the one ring. Another great one. Uh, Andy Dufresne's Rita Hayworth poster and chess pieces. Another good. These are all great, but easily. I mean, easily. Vader's helmet and lightsaber. Two of the most iconic things in film history. And, of course, I'm a big Star Wars guy. Now, what's interesting is I have stood with the actual original bullwhip. I was at, uh, I was, I was very fortunate and lucky to actually go to Skywalker Ranch, and I was standing in the main cottage, and they've got these displays out, and under there's this thing, one area where they had the actual idol from the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they had the whip. It was crazy, but yeah, man, easy, easy for me. Other people may have struggled with that one because those are some good options, but for me, it's Vader's helmet and lightsaber. Uh, ben Robinson writes, just finished watching Sons of Anarchy again. Fantastic. And my God, the scene when Juice tells Jax the truth in prison, I report Juicy, um, uh, is incredible. Charlie Hunnam doesn't get enough credit for playing Jax. Jax, in my opinion, is up there with uh, Don Draper from Mad Men and Tony Soprano uh, as an all-time character. Well, look, Sons of Anarchy is one of my top three all-time favorite shows. Battlestar Galactica is my number one, and then we got Spartacus and uh, Sons of Anarchy in there. I love that show, and I loved Charlie Hunnam in the show. And Juicy was such a great character. Uh, and then he went on to be in Luke Cage. Anyway, uh, Juicy was such a great character, all that kind of stuff. The, the, the trouble with Charlie Hunnam is that until The Gentleman, which came out earlier this year, in which Charlie Hunnam is amazing. I love Sons of Anarchy, but I've never really loved his acting outside of it. So I've, I've never really been sure, what do I think about Charlie Hunnam as an actor in general? I, I've never, I've always struggled with that a little bit because I love him in Sons of Anarchy, but I've never found him to be all that great until I saw him in The Gentleman. He's so good in The Gentleman. And he was, was it Lost City of Z? He was also pretty good in that. But it was great because it renewed my faith. So I don't know if I put him up there. <clears throat> um, 
with, I mean, I don't know if I put him up there with Tony Soprano. It's definitely an ensemble show. And Charlie Hunnam was the backbone of it. But then, you know, you look at Clay. Clay is one of the great characters. Um, you know, Jax's mother is one of the great all-time television characters. Ope was my favorite character on that show. Bobby was great. Tiggy is amazing. I mean, the, the characters in that show are just so freaking good. Guys, listen, seriously. If you have not watched Sons of Anarchy, I don't know what you're waiting for. Take Ben Robinson's advice. Go watch Sons of Anarchy. It's insanely good. All right. Let's move on here. Uh, Mr. Lara writes, hi, number one, I have never read. Uh, I have never read a book before the movie, but I just bought the new Hunger Games prequel book. Will reading it maximize or minimize my enjoyment of the upcoming movie? Two, you said Gamora's death is inconsequential. Isn't the isn't it isn't the Gamora we love gone? Now, we've gone over that a thousand times. It's still just Gamora. It's still just Gamora. It's all just semantics after that. Just like the new Loki show, it's Loki. But it's not the Loki we... Lo no, no, it's the same Loki. It's a totally same Loki. Just hasn't had these these two years of experiences that are missing. But other than that, it's the exact same Loki. They can, they undid the whole thing. Anyway, getting back to the thing. I personally have a rule that if I know a movie's coming out and it's based on the book, don't if I haven't already, don't read the book before the movie. The only time I've broken that rule is ironically for the Hunger Games. Like, I just couldn't wait for the movie to come out. Everybody was talking about Hunger Games, these books. And, and I even saw LeBron James sitting in the, his locker room at halftime of an NBA game reading the Hunger Games book. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I, I still remember I read the book um, in Vegas because I was playing poker in Vegas and I would just read the book on my tablet in between hands because, <laughs> you know, I only play about one every 10 hands. So I'm like, you know, check my cards, fold, read my book until the next hand starts, check my cards, fold. Okay. Now read the book. And I literally got through the hunger games books in like a, a weekend <laughs> playing poker. Um, but here's the thing. I normally suggest that people wait for the movie because what happens is Whatever your first experience with a story is, that becomes your benchmark. And the fact of the matter is, a screenplay is about anywhere, anywhere between 100 and 120, 130 pages long for a movie. But the book is going to be like 400 pages long. That means there's going to be a bunch of stuff in the book that does not come into the movie. And if your first experience is with the book, then you're going to go, why is this missing? Why is this missing? You know, all that kind of stuff. For instance, a lot of people who never read the Lord of the Rings novels, they watch the Lord of the Rings movies. They're like, this is the greatest thing ever. But a lot of people who read the books, most of them thought it was the greatest thing ever too. But some people who read the books were like, where's Tom Bombadil? Without Tom Bombadil, it's not Lord of the Rings. And they left this out and they left this out. Well, yes, because you're talking about 120 page screenplay, 130, 140 page screenplay versus like a, a 600 page book. So I normally recommend waiting for the movie, but if you're a big fan of Hunger Games, go ahead and read the book. Go ahead and read the book. Just remember, when it comes time for the movie, forget the book. Go into the movie, try to have as clean of a page as possible in your mind, and just enjoy and evaluate the movie on its own merits, not how does it compare to the book. That's the only thing I would suggest, Mr. Laura, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Luke1234 writes, in Endgame, 
Uh, Terminator, Back to the Future, Time Cop, and other movies are mentioned. But does Disney have to get permission from the studio to mention these films? No, they do not. Uh, what if those studios didn't want their films mentioned? Tough. They're, it's public. I mean, it's you, that's totally fair use, right? You can be in a movie and mention Brad Pitt. He's a real personality. It's a real thing. Um, you can make, Now, what they may not be able to do is show clips from Terminator, they may not be able to show clips from Back to the Future, but yes, you can mention it. It's that's that's totally fair use. You can mention them. I mean, a lot of times studios don't want to give free promotion and publicity to other stuff, but yes, you can absolutely mention that. They don't need the other studio's permission to just mention them. All right, ZMG Ruler writes. The Snyder Cut seemed to really benefit from the pandemic as no new shooting is needed. Uh, it got me thinking, well, that doesn't mean it benefited from the pandemic. That just basically means the pandemic isn't negatively affecting it. Like if if uh, the Snyder Cut needed more shooting, then the pandemic would be a problem. But they've already said they're not shooting any more scenes. They're just, they're just taking the stuff they all shot. They've, they've made it official. They're not shooting any new stuff. So the pandemic, I wouldn't say benefited the Snyder cut, but it's just that the pandemic didn't really negatively affect the Snyder cut too much because like you said, all the shooting is done. Anyway, no new shooting is needed. Uh, it got me thinking, does this affect Feige's long-term plans? The longer this goes on or worst case scenario, all MCU content will be Disney plus as all DC content is HBO max. No, 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 that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because what's going to happen is what we already see happening. They'll just push everything. It's not going to change their long-term plans. The only thing it's changing is their scheduling. That's it. Like this had to get bumped, you know, for Black Widow was supposed to be in theaters already. It's been pushed. So they may have to take everything and shove it down a bit. But that's going to be the maximum of how it ultimately changes Feige's plans. Listen, Black Widow is going to make 10 times the money that it would potentially generate on Disney Plus in theaters. It's going to make 10 times the money in theaters, what it would possibly generate on Disney+. Plus. The Eternals is going to make 10 times as much money in theaters as it would possibly generate on Disney+. Plus. Then they're going to have some great Disney Plus stuff with Falcon and Winter Soldier, all that kind of stuff. But they need that theatrical to be the money revenue source. So the biggest impact is just going to be it's just going to sh shuffle their schedules. That's about it. It's going to shuffle the schedules. All right. Russell Amador writes. Hey, John, did you see the Project Power trailer starring Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt? By the way, we haven't seen Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a while, and he's been popping up in a couple of things lately. It's an interesting take on the superhero genre with the whole pop a pill, unlock a power for five minutes, and no telling what your power is till you take it. I'm sold. It, it was an okay trailer. Um, I remember Rob and I talked about it yesterday. He really liked the trailer. I thought it was okay. I thought it was all right. It felt a little bit to me, you remember that Bradley Cooper movie, Limitless? Uh, Bradley Cooper, Johnny Whitworth, uh, I'm trying to remember who else was in that. But anyway, you remember that movie, Limitless, where he takes the pill and he gets super intelligent by taking the pill. It reminded me a little bit of that. For those of you who haven't seen the trailer, go check it out. A lot of people really like it. So just because I didn't think it was great, you might think it's great. So make sure you go check it out. Yeah, the idea, the premise is pretty cool though. There's a pill that if you take it, it unlocks what a natural superpower you have is, and it manifests for five minutes. And you don't know what your superpower is until you take the pill. And then you only have it for five minutes. And if you want the power back, you got to take another pill and have it for another five minutes. It's a neat melding of 
the narcotics plague with a superhero type genre content, right? It's blending things like an, an addictive, dangerous drug. And I like that they point out in the trailer that some people taking this drug, it kills them. Like they get this power, but the power may kill them, right? But they get hooked and addicted on the power. So it's a really neat blending of the two things. So I, I didn't think the trailer was great, but I am excited to see it because the premise sounds so cool. And just because it wasn't the greatest trailer doesn't mean I don't think the movie's going to be great. So, And the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is getting active again is also pretty cool to me. So I'm looking forward to it. All right, Spartan X1 writes, Hey, John, what do you think of uh, Modestus, uh, Modestus uh, Bukakis's UFC debut fight? Hope you're having a good day. Um, He looked pretty good. He looked pretty good. It was... He also looked a little sloppy. But granted, this was his first UFC fight. And, you know, it was a good finish. I don't know why more people to do. The guy shoots in, right, for a single leg or whatever and has you against the fence. The head's exposed. Just start hammering the elbows. And that's what he did. You saw the welt on the side of the guy's head. So, I mean, he looked, like I said, a little sloppy. But he also looks like he's got a lot of gifts. He's a good. He's a big physical specimen for that weight division. So nice finish, good heads up and, and ring awareness, knowing to drop those elbows at that time and finishing the guy off. So I'm going to look forward to seeing how he progresses again. First UFC fight, probably had some jitters, but uh, looked, again, a little bit sloppy here and there, but it looks like he's got a lot of weapons. So I'll look forward to seeing what, what he does moving forward. All right, Connor writes, one of three. Studio Ghibli's new movie coming out, Aya and the Witch, and also the next Lupin 3 movie will be completely CG uh, before. I think it's too early for panicking, but I see some people worried that the big Japanese animation studios may transition um, into doing predominantly CG animation like in the US. I'm not upset that these movies are being animated with CG, but I would be upset to see Japanese hand-drawn animations become obsolete, especially because uh, this weekend I rewatched The Tales of Kaguya uh, on HBO Max. It's done with watercolor and it's so beautiful. It's the animated equivalent to Jet Li's Hero which is like one of those beautiful films you could ever watch uh, in terms of, of uh, visual beauty. It's also done by the late great Isayo Takahata uh, from Grave of the Fireflies, which is like one of the most gut-wrenching animated movies ever. I can never watch Grave of the Fireflies again. I just felt... <laughs> I just felt like I need to... I don't drink. I felt like I wanted to drink heavily after watching that movie. It's a brilliant movie, but you can never watch it again. So yes, I cried the last 15 minutes. I mean... Here's here's the thing, though. To me, and I'm only speaking for myself, the brilliance of a lot of these Studio Ghibli movies isn't the animation style. I think, and this is just one theory, I think we have come to adore the animation style because we, we associate that animation with the incredible stories they tell. It's the stories. And we love and adore the stories that Ghibli tell us. And they're done in that animation style. So we now associate in our minds that animation style with these. I would propose that if those movies were done today in CGI, I don't believe they would be any less beloved. Because I believe at the heart of it, the real strength of those movies are the stories they tell rather than the medium that's being used to tell them. 
And I mean, I agree. Listen, it, it's always good to have some diversity. So whereas everybody else is doing CG, it's really cool that there's other studios doing other types of animation. Yes. But if we found out tomorrow that from now on moving forward, they're all just doing CGI, period, I really wouldn't lose any sleep over it because the stories they are going to tell are still going to be their stories. And to me, that is the heart of what has made those things so special. And if they were done in CGI before, we would love them just as much. But they were done in a certain style, and so we associate that style with the beauty of the stories. But really, the stories will still be the stories. So I'm okay with it. I know me saying that's not going to be popular for many people, and that that's fine. But I don't think there's anything to worry about either way. By the way, I don't think they're going to move away from it entirely anyway. I really don't. But even if they do, I don't think there's anything to worry about. I think the stories are still going to be great. But that's just my thoughts on that. Thanks for sharing that, Connor. All right. Ryan Loner writes, my friend's kids are completely obsessed with Hamilton. You haven't lived until you've seen an adorable five-year-old saying, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of your love. The King's Song, man. It's my favorite song in Hamilton. And I love a lot of the music in Hamilton. I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. All the music. You know, immigrants, we get the job done. It's it's so good. Like, I remember Anne got us tickets to go see. We got to see it actual, the live production of Hamilton. We went to the Pentagius, got to see the live production of it. It was already a big phenomenon when, when, when we went to go see it. Anne already had the soundtrack and was listening to the soundtrack incessantly. She still listens to the soundtrack incessantly. But we went to the Pentagius, and I was expecting it to be good. I... I walked out with my jaw on the ground. I honestly think it might be my second favorite live stage show I've ever seen. My favorite to this day remains Les Mis. Les Mis is still, to me, the standard by which all others are measured. But I'll tell you what, Hamilton was an incredible experience. And then watching it again on Disney Plus was a lot of fun. It's it's pretty good. Anyway, thanks for sharing that, Ryan. All right, uh, Jordan Genovese writes, Hey, John and Aaron. Yeah, Aaron's not here this week. As SC, uh, S San Diego Comic-Con at home is a week or so away and Marvel has not been confirmed to appear, do you think this means they may do their own event online? And if fandom, that's the DC event, is a success, do you think this may lead both doing their own thing going forward? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things you got to understand. Number one, Marvel has kind of, while they did have a presence at San Diego Comic-Con last year, Marvel has also kind of been quietly and slowly, bit by bit, kind of moving away from Comic-Con anyway. Although they did have a big Hall H panel last year. But remember, Marvel and Disney have their own big event called D23. It's massive and it's well done and they totally control it. Rather than just showing up to SC, uh, San Diego Comic-Con and kind of doing their thing. They they control every aspect of it. And it's a, honestly, D23 is fantastic. It really is wonderful. And they tell the bigger stories and drop the bigger news at D23 already than they do at San Diego Comic-Con. That doesn't take anything away from Comic-Con, though. As far as DC goes... Um, well, what, what is success? What does that mean? What is success for the online DC fandom? I don't know. 
I don't know what success means. What's the measurement for that? And I'm not really sure. All I know is this. Comic-Con, whether Marvel is there, whether DC is there, it don't matter. Because, you know, I go to Comic-Con every year. I've I missed one Comic-Con in like the last 12. It's about being there. It's about being surrounded by hundreds of thousands of other fans there filled with joy, celebrating the stuff that they love. There is something inherently good for the soul about being in an environment like that. And guess what? Ask me how many times I went into Hall H in those 12 years. Twice. And one of them was because I was moderating one of the panels. That's it. I was I was the moderator for, for a Hall H panel. That's half the time I've been in there. And then I went in there like one other time. Uh, there might have, you know what? There might have been another one, but basically, I barely go into the convention center when I'm at Comic Con. I go to Comic Con to be at Comic Con. That's where the power of Comic Con is. Whether Marvel's there or whether DC's there, it's kind of irrelevant. I still think you're going to see DC really taking it, especially as Marvel starts to move out of D of of uh, Comic Con a little bit more to put more emphasis on D23. Not to mention they also have their own standalone Star Wars thing in in the. Um, um, Star Wars celebration conventions. So they already have their other stuff that they're investing more and more in. So I expect to see Marvel pulling out more over the next coming years as it is. DC, I think regardless of how good this online thing is, I think DC will still take advantage of Marvel's absence from Comic-Con and really take over the spotlight there. But we'll have to wait and see. I am looking forward to, to DC fandom, hopefully, because I want to hear some... I want to hear some Henry Cavill announcement. I don't know if they will, but that's what I want to see. All right. Next up, Preston Bell writes, uh, Today is the 10th anniversary of the theatrical release of Inception. Uh, Nolan's movies still hold up. Even Memento, which is turning 20 this year, seems to be relevant nowadays. I completely agree. His movies like Memento, Insomnia, uh, obviously Inception, The Prestige, these, and then obviously his Batman movies, his movies hold up. They really do. Um, and I th I think they hold up in terms of the relevance of their narrative. There's a lot of universal themes that he uses. <coughs> Pardon me. That went down the wrong way. Hold on. There's a lot of universal themes to share to human experiences. <coughs> I still got this one drop of her previous sit sitting right there. Um, uh, that he utilizes that tells stories about the human condition that kind of transcend whatever era there, his movies come out. But it is, it is an amazing thing. 10th anniversary of inception. It's kind of crazy. All right. Julius a Goodwin writes. So honestly, do you think Disney is really going to kiss off nearly 1.5 billion in earnings? That's Deadpool one and two, uh, by not making a sequel. This is a company they'd reshow song of the South and all of its racist glory. If they could figure out how, Oh, but here's the problem, Julius. Here's the problem with, with that kind of assumption. Let's go for a second. Let's look at uh, Ant-Man box office. All right. Ant-Man. That, you know, this, very, this hardly known little character, blah, blah, came out, made 500. Um, let me, let's bring it. Made $520 million. Ant-Man did. And then they put out Ant-Man 2. Made over $600 million. So you're talking about Ant-Man. 
that made nearly like one point, nearly one point two billion dollars in its two films. Here's the bottom line. There's not many Marvel property. There's not many movies Marvel could do that wouldn't make close to or more than one point five billion dollars if they made two of them. Captain Marvel just made over a billion dollars in one film. How much money do you think Black Widow's going to make? I don't think Black Widow's going to make a billion dollars, but guess what? It's probably going to clear eight hundred million. So you do two Black Widow movies, there, you've made more than than uh, Deadpool did. The bottom line is this. Marvel believes that they can make almost any movies and they can get $1.5 in two of them. I, I don't think Marvel... It's, it's not like Marvel is struggling. Remember, Marvel is averaging almost a billion dollars per film. Think about that. When you look at all the MCU movies and you take their total box office, they're almost averaging a billion dollars per film. When you understand that, how big a deal is needing to have Deadpool and it's 1.5 billion? It's still good. Don't get me wrong. I desperately want Deadpool. Deadpool brings a lot of joy to a lot of people. But what I'm saying is if you really just want to look at it from a financial point of view, like you're pointing out then they can make almost any two movies and make $1.5 billion. By average, they can make any two movies and make almost $2 billion. At worst, you get something like Ant-Man and you're still making close to what Deadpool made. So yes, they can make another Deadpool movie, make another $800, $900 million. But the thing that Kevin Feige and, and Alan Horn and Bob Chapek and Bob Iger all believe is that we can make just about any of these movies because we know we can make them well. We trust our process. We trust that we hire the right writers for the right projects. We trust that Kevin gets the right directors for the right movies. And we believe in that process. And we believe that our process brings us so much success that eh, we could do Deadpool or we could do something else and probably make the same amount of money. It's, it's weird, but that's how successful Marvel has been. It's weird to think about it in those terms, but that is how successful Marvel, or uh, yeah, Marvel has been with their movies. Because if we were talking about the Sony Cinematic Universe and they had Deadpool, they'd be crazy not to immediately jump on a third film from a franchise that's made $1.5 billion in the previous two. Of course, they'd be crazy not to. DCEU as well, but with Marvel... Hell, that number, $1.5 in two films, that's not even Marvel's average. That's below Marvel's average. So, again, I'm not saying that means they shouldn't make another one. Not at all. You know how badly I want Deadpool 3. I'm just saying on a purely financial stuff, there's not an argument there for now. But it's something we do need to keep in mind. All right, thanks for that, Julius. All right, next up, we've got Mark C. who writes, Another factor to Tenet's cost in all films right now is the longer these movies go without showing, the more the bank is compounding interest on the studio's loans. It's not always the bank. It's also like whoever the investors are. Right? It's not just the bank. A lot of times, sometimes studios get their line of credits from the bank to put up their movies. But yes, that is also, we've talked about that on the show. The longer, you know, studios very rarely, Disney does for many of their films, but the studios very rarely for the most part, 
say, oh, it costs $200 million to make that movie. No problem. They just cut a check for $200 million to make the movie. They go get investors. Sometimes that investors are the banks. And what whoever they get that money from, the longer the movie, the, the longer that debt is there, it's accumulating interest. And when you're talking about dollar figures in the hundreds of millions, interest starts to add up. So yes, yeah, that becomes a factor as well. And then again, we're only talking right now. Remember, right now, Tenet is scheduled to come out on August 12th. I don't think it's going to make that release date. But for now, it's scheduled for August 12th. That's less than one month from its original release date in July. I think the original release date was July 17th. The movie was supposed to open tomorrow. Tenet was supposed to open tomorrow. But it's only one month removed. So I don't know that that's a big factor. Look, once it gets delayed by nine months, a year, well, now we're getting some, some significant accumulation of interest dollars. But right now, it's really not all that far removed. So I don't know if it's a big issue right now. But we'll see if it becomes one. Hitchcock is the GOAT writes, Hey, John, you might know this already, but you can get HBO Max as an add-on within Hulu. We've talked about that on this show before. Uh, and Hulu being available on Roku could be a way to backdoor it in. Although it only works for Hulu subscribers, I'll wait for the Snyder Cut before I add it myself. Yeah, so we have talked about it before. And it's not just Hulu. There's one or two other third-party apps that you can add HBO Max onto. The problem is I don't want to have to bury – if I'm going to pay – for that subscription. I don't want to bury it in another app. Like when I open my Roku menu, I got all my top watch things. There's my Netflix, there's my Hulu, there's my YouTube, there's my YouTube TV, there's my uh, ESPN app, there's my Disney Plus, there's my Amazon uh, Prime Video, and so on and so forth. I want to be able to open my Roku and go to the app I want and just select it. I don't want to have to open up one app to get into it, dig in, and get to the other app that I really want to get to. First world problems. <laughs> totally first world problems. But I shouldn't have to do that. I should have the native app with its native UI, and I should just have it there, right there, that I can click on and use. And they totally need to get this fixed. Because I haven't got HBO Max yet. And I have no intention of getting it yet. But uh, once they actually make it available on my platform, then I'll look into it. But yes, you're right. It's HBO, uh, it's Hulu, and it's one or two others you can backdoor it as well. So those possibilities are there. I can also add it to my PS4 Pro. That's hooked up to my T. I can add it to my PS4. But if I want to, be, if I, I want my television experience to be one remote, one device, access everything. I don't want to have to now switch my import source on my TV, go fire up my PlayStation and load up just so I can watch something on HBO Max. Again, totally spoiled first world problems, no doubt. But that's kind of where we're talking about. All right, John McKinney writes, do you prefer happy endings or sad endings? Personally, story and characters come first. As long as the story is good and the characters are likable, you're on the right track. I, I have no preference. I, I only care about does the happy ending or the sad ending best fit the story. That's that's all that matters. It's like saying, um, would you rather, you know, score a goal from shooting from there or would you rather score a goal from shooting from there? I don't know. If the end result is we get a point and I scored, that's all that matters. I don't care if it's from there or from there. I don't care whether a good ending to the movie and a satisfying ending in the movie comes as a result of a happy ending 
or comes as a result of a sad ending. It doesn't matter to me. All I want is a well-executed ending. And from movie to movie, story to story, what they need to accomplish that will differ. And as long as they come, listen, because I could say, oh, I prefer happy endings. Well, you can have a happy ending that sucks, right? So I'd say it's not whether you use a happy ending or a sad ending. It's about picking which is the right one for the movie at hand. So that's kind of how I feel about that. All right, next up, Old Man Playing writes, News Bulletin, TV films. Uh, there was several TV films from the 80s and 90s that was set in the live newsroom. Oh, okay, that's what you're talking about. Kind of like the show Newsroom. Uh, during a news-breaking story, for example, Special Bulletin, Without Warning, Special Report, Journey to Mars, Countdown, Looking Glass. I didn't watch a lot of TV movies back in that era. I got to say, in the 80s and 90s, I didn't watch a lot of TV movies. Very, very few. Um, that, I mean, especially in that era, I kind of thought TV movies were just bad movies that couldn't make it couldn't get I, i'm not it's not fair that i thought that but that's just kind of what my mindset at the time was as a younger kid i was like oh those are just movies that weren't good enough to make it in the theaters so that whole era i actually didn't watch a lot of made for tv movies uh, of any of those types it even took me a while to, to watch um to watch some of the shows that i do talk about here it took me a while to get around to those but yeah so i didn't watch a lot of those but thank you for for bringing so news bulletin tv films stuff like that Thanks. See, I learned something new from our viewers every single day. Thank you for that, man. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, Zero Suit uh, Lopany writes, one of two. Um, all due respect, John, but I think your 66% ticket cut factor is probably wrong. I've seen uh, Grace Randolph, Roger Ebert, and numerous others uh, with their finger on the pulse of the industry uh, say theaters keep around 50% of the ticket price, not 66 And yes, this is factoring in the sliding scale where theaters get bigger percent as the weeks go on. Uh, this provides incentive to keep the show in the movie. Obviously, the analysts are 50% for tenant. How, uh, hence, the claim of $400 million equals $800 million to break even. Okay, that's fine, Zero Suit. You can say that. That's fine. You can say Grace said one thing and whatever said another. That's fine. I actually spoke to the people who actually do it. Now, again, maybe things changed a little bit, but all I am telling you is when I sat down with the actual people who do it, the actual people involved, AMC theaters and their executives, all right? So you can say you heard from Grace Randolph, or you heard from this person, or you heard from that person. That's fine. That's fine. But I actually sat down in the headquarters of AMC theaters with their executives who kind of showed me how it worked, you know, and, and you got to remember too, like most movies make the vast majority of their money in their opening weekend, particularly their opening week. And some of these movies, particularly the bigger ones, they'll keep like 70 to 80 to 90% of the box office in the case of, I remember when Phantom Menace came out, they actually made the theaters give up 100% of the box office, 100% of the box office. Literally the opening weekend of Phantom Menace, the movie theaters kept nothing of the movie ticket sales. Now the movie theaters still made money because they got all those people in theaters and they, they sold their popcorn and they sold their soda and they sold their uh, junior mints and whatever. And they made money that way. And then the longer that the movie goes on, that uh, starts to even out. 
So maybe studio keeps 85% of opening weekend. Okay, by the time you get into week two, maybe it's 70-30. Then when you get into week three, it's 50-50. Then when you get beyond week three, it goes into the theater's benefit, like 65, 40, whatever. And maybe then if you average out that sliding scale, maybe it comes around, okay, and time-wise works out 50-50, but you're not taking into consideration that the movie makes the vast majority of its money in those opening week, particularly that opening week, when the studio is getting the vast majority of its money is getting the highest percentage. So listen, maybe it's adjusted. Maybe it's all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying you didn't hear that from Grace Randolph. And I'm not saying you didn't hear that from whatever movie critic. All I can tell you is what I have been told by the actual people who actually are involved with it. And what they told me was that when it's all said and done, a good rule of thumb is it basically works out to be one third. When you actually, when all the dollar figures are calculated, it basically works out to be one third. Now, again, that's not an exact science. It does vary from film to film. There's a lot of different stuff like that. But again, I know it says some other places this. All I can tell you is not what I know because I'm not in this industry. All I can tell you is what the actual executives who actually do it told me. And which is that the rule of thumb is one third. So, I mean, so take that for what it's worth. Maybe they didn't know what they were talking about. Maybe the executives at AMC theaters who make the deals didn't know what they were talking about. Maybe, maybe things have changed. It's been a couple of years since I worked for AMC. Maybe things have changed. So all I can tell you is what I have been told. That That's all I can tell you is what I was told. And that's what I was told. Anyway. So there's that. All right, but thanks for bringing that up, Zero. All right, next up. Old Man Playwrights. For me, best Al Pacino, Scent of a Woman. Ooh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I mean, Al Pacino and Scent of a Woman is fantastic. He's absolutely brilliant in that. I think he won his Academy Award for that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, hold a second. Scent of a Woman. Let me just bring that up here. Do, 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 do. Oop, I'm in the wrong app. Hold a second. Uh, scent of a Woman, 1992, Al Pacino, and I believe he won an Academy Award for that? Yes, Al Pacino won Best Actor in a Leading Role for that. It was also nominated for Best Director for Martin Best, Best Screenplay for Bo, for Bo Goldman, and it was also nominated for Best Picture, but Al Pacino won the only Academy Award for it that year, which was for Best Actor. Uh, okay, David Crabtree writes, okay. Let's clear up the Terminator clothes issue. Uh, the T-1000 and the T-X from T-3 don't take anyone's clothes. It's stated in the film T-2 that the T-1000 can mimic any person or item it comes into physical contact with. So the T-1000 um, comes through the portal without clothes or the appearance of clothes because it hasn't had physical contact with anyone yet. Only Arnold takes other people's clothes in the Terminator. The T-1000 and TX uh, only mimic the appearance of clothes after contact. But it still raises... But David, it still remains the question, though. Why didn't the, the um, uh, T-2... Why didn't he just mimic clothing before coming through the portal? Like, why did he have to take on the physical appearance of a naked man to come through the portal? Why not? Because it's all his own physical makeup, right? So it still doesn't answer that question. But thank you for bringing a little bit more clarity to that situation. I, I appreciate that, David. But again, the, the outstanding question is, since he manufactures and takes the appearance of all that stuff, why couldn't he come through the portal in the appearance of something that looked like clothes? Just a question. 
Just a question. All right. Thanks for that, David. All right. Next up, an anonymous viewer writes, uh, I just recently got to episode 13 of season six of Sons of Anarchy when Jax loses uh, loses her. Uh, that performance Charlie Hunnam uh, gives, it's heartbreaking. He deserved an Emmy, Emmy just for that one scene. Listen, I'm telling you what. Forget when he found out. And I'm not going to I'm going to try to explain this without giving away any major spoilers. <clears throat> I remember when forget Charlie Hunnam and Jack's finding out about the incident. The incident scene itself was one of me to me one of the most shocking surprising um scenes in any TV show I've ever seen. That scene that we're talking about with Jax's mom and what happens, I believe it was a season finale too. I think it was a season finale that it happened. So yeah, next season, Jack finds out about the incident, about what happened. But the actual scene of what happens, I, I, I can't remember the last time I gasped the way I did when that happened in that show. Again, I'm trying not to give anything away, but it was just ridiculous man all right uh just plain steve writes on the subject of books versus movies is there any movie that you've actually preferred over the book several actually uh it was a over the book it was adapted from for me it's definitely the count of monte cristo that book is a struggle to get through and, and there's a lot in that book that is never covered in any of the movie versions there's a lot in that book um yes i i think I, but you understand, I generally do prefer the movies over the books. It's actually a rarer occasion for me that I prefer a book over the movie. One of the rare exceptions is, say, uh, Da Vinci Code. I thought the Da Vinci Code book was actually better than the movie. Um, but, but, and there are a couple of other examples for that, but I am more of a visual medium guy, so I actually kind of prefer the movie versions most of the time. And normally, because I have... It's also partially because I have that rule that I prefer watching the movie first before then engaging with the book. But again, the same rule applies. Whatever your first experience with the story is, that becomes your benchmark. So when you see a movie first, at least for me, and then I read the book, instead of going, this isn't like the book, I'm like, hey, this is different from the movie. You know what I mean? And so it's actually works in reverse for me. So there's a little bit of that. Thanks for that, Plain Steve. All right. An anonymous viewer writes, Hey, John, fans since the AMC days. Thank you so much, man. I understand we all say dumb things, but the dumbest argument about Superman being black is okay because he's not human, but an alien is ridiculous. It's like saying you, me, or a black guy crash landing on Krypton. Uh, we... Uh, are not considered Kryptonian, but are the aliens there? Does that change our skin color? Absolutely not. Superman is a white humanoid being, and newsflash, that is who he is. Kryptonians, like humans, are born a certain way. Oh, no. No, no. It's a completely valid argument because the argument is you're, change, you're, you're changing his race from a white human being to a black human being. Superman isn't white or black. He has the appearance of somebody who's white, but that's it. That's the only argument. Superman is not Caucasian, period, end of sentence. That's it. Superman's not Caucasian. He looks like he's Caucasian because the, the, the skin, the, the tone of his skin is a certain color. It's completely irrelevant to the character. 
the tone of this alien organism's skin color is completely inconsequential to who and what the character is. It's like saying, and Superman was uh, five foot eleven in the original one. This guy is six foot one. That's not what Superman is. It's completely inconsequential. Whether he's 5'11 or 6'1 is completely inconsequential to the DNA and the character of who that character is. This alien being, this alien organism, who happens to have the skin tone appearance of what a Caucasian human's skin tone appearance is, is absolutely 100% inconsequential, just like whether Superman is 6'1 or six feet and a half. It doesn't matter. Because it, it is the same thing. Complaining about an aspect of the physical appearance of an alien organism like Superman, saying, well, his skin pigmentation looked more like a Caucasian guy's as opposed to an African-American guy's. That's as irrelevant as saying, well, in that Superman comic, he was five foot 11 and a half, and that actor six foot one. It's totally different. It's inconsequential. It's completely inconsequential. There is nothing about the skin color of Superman that is imperative to the DNA of who and what the character is and stands for. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing. You can't. Now, the one argument that comes close to having some validity would be if we were in a different era and let's say Superman crash landed in the 1950s or 40s and became a man in the 1970s or 1980s. There's something to be said then because Superman appearing black with in, in, in a place like Kansas and understanding the social biases that existed, that it would become more of an issue of a white farmer family suddenly suddenly they have this black child and stuff like that. You can make an argument that if that era was the 40s, 50s, 60s, that that becomes more important. There becomes a narrative imperative then about the skin color or the appearance of the skin color of Kal-El. But you can't make that argument anymore. It's not, it, once you get into the 90s and 2000s, it's not nearly as much of an issue today. Therefore, I believe that narrative imperative doesn't exist anymore. Look, it's fine if you want to say, I just know Superman is being white, so I want Superman to be white. Okay, that's fair. But also acknowledge then that there's no need for him to be white. T'Challa? needs to be black. There is narrative imperative that the character is black, right? I believe because of the whole idea of Bruce Wayne coming from a position of incredible white privilege, I believe there is a narrative imperative that Bruce Wayne be white. But very, very few other super, superhero characters, white, black, or whatever, very, very few other superhero characters, I believe, carry that same uh, narrative imperative. And I've heard no legitimate argument against it other than, well, I've always known Superman as being, as having this skin pigmentation. So I always want Superman to have that skin pigmentation. I'll say, okay, that's fair. But now you're talking about why you want it to be that, not why it needs to be that. Superman doesn't need to be white. 
Now, don't get me wrong. All the things being equal, I want Henry Cavill as Superman. I, I, I want this, uh, this white Superman. I want that white Superman. All the things being equal, I want that white Superman. But, I mean, if they decide they want to try something different and they wanted to have a Michael B. Jordan, which was the rumor, but let's play with it for a second. Let's say they wanted Michael B. Jordan to play Superman. Okay, it doesn't change anything about the character. And because of that, I don't see what the problem is. I don't see now I would prefer Henry Cavill, but I don't see what the problem is. And again, the skin pigmentation color is no different than complaining about he's supposed to be six foot and three quarters inch in the comics, and he's six one and three quarters inch here. It's totally different. It changes the character completely. No, it doesn't. Just like nobody cared, everybody got over the fact that Wolverine wasn't five foot one anymore because Hugh Jackman is six plus feet. Nobody cared because it wasn't important. The skin pigmentation of Superman is not an important part of that character. And you can argue you want him to be a certain way, and I respect that. But there's no legitimate argument that says he needs to be that way. So anyway, that's just me. That's just me. All right. Anyway, next up. Uh, let's see. Final one. Uh, is also anonymous, still talking about Superman saying, saying, why change it? No, the, no, the question is why not? The question isn't why change it. The question is why not? What reason is there to not change it? Anyway, uh, Superman isn't a Martian Manhunter who can change his appearance, uh, which can be white or black. And he has been that, uh, that, uh, and he has been, and that's okay. I love ethnic superheroes as well, but I prefer to leave the original ones alone. Okay, but what is the original one? And, and when you say, here's how I would challenge you as my fellow film fan. Then which things are important and which things are not? Is the hairstyle important? And if not, then why is the hairstyle not important, but the skin tone of this alien organism is? Is height the important thing? If not, how come that physical attribute isn't important to you, but the physical attribute of the skin pigmentation color is important to you? Is it whether or not he has the red underwear on the outside, which has always been ridiculous, but is it the fact that he has the red underwear over top of his tights? If not, how come that physical appearance issue isn't an issue to you, but the tone of his skin pigmentation is an, uh, an issue to you? We've had Superman actors who have had different color eyes. Is that important? Is that speak to who and what the character is? If not, how come that physical attribute isn't important to you, but the tone of, the, of his skin pigmentation is important to you? Again, I would just say you ask the question, why change it? I'm saying I've yet to hear a legitimate argument about why not. And in the absence of a good solid argument as to why not, then you don't need a why. You just do it to, to do it. Why have, why change Wolverine from five foot one, five foot two, four foot eleven, whatever he's supposed to be in the comics? Why change it? Well, why not? And they did. And now everybody beloves Hugh Jackman as that. Again, I just, I just don't know why. I've yet to hear a really valid, sound argument, in my opinion, as to why that one physical characteristic as opposed to all the other potential physical appearance characteristics why this one thing is narratively imperative that it stays the same whereas hairstyle red under ruse height of the character whatever else 
certain the way his teeth is, certain way the, his physical size is, blah, blah, blah. None of those physical things matter. But the physical matter of the pigmentation of the skin, I, I don't, I've yet to hear a good solid argument to tell me why it is narratively imperative that that part stays the same while it's fine that everything else changes. I don't know. Again, that's just me. And again, I don't want to take away from the fact that there are people who are just like, I want him to stay white because I want him to stay white. That's just what I've always known. So I want it to stay that way. That's fair enough. But again, that's a reason, that's a good reason why you want it to stay that way. It's not a good reason why it needs to stay that way. And remember, I'm saying this as a guy, I'm saying this as a guy who totally wants my pasty white Henry Cavill back as Superman. I'm saying this as, as a guy who wants this Superman back. But it doesn't have to be. I, I guess that's the point for me. Anyway, guys, that will do it. And again, thanks for sharing your thoughts, man. I, I mean, we have different thoughts on it, but I appreciate that you share your perspective because I'm sure there are others who agree with your perspective. So I'm glad you shared it, my brother. All right. That will do it, my friends, for this installment of the John Campion Show. Thank you so much for being here today. And listen, guys. Uh, as always, I know there's a lot of things you can be doing with your time. The very fact that you decided to spend a part of your time here with us today is uh, something I'm very cognitive of, and thank you so much for that. And a special thank you to all you guys who did send in the questions, because number one, you gave us great fun things to talk about. Number two, you supported the channel while we did it. And on behalf of myself and everybody else who works on the channel, thank you guys so much for that. Don't forget, we will be back again tomorrow for the next episode of The John Campius Show. Guys, in the meantime, please stay smart. Stay safe, take care of yourselves, take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me. My name's John Campion. Until next time, my friends, bye-bye.